This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I don't really know how to begin this, um, so I'm just going to shoot from the heart here and tell you that uh, I've been a lot, doing a lot of studying. I've been in church my entire life. I've been the pastor for 30-something years, and I've seen God move incredibly in the book of Acts. I've seen God move like I've never seen him before in Haiti. I hear stories about God moving really powerful in churches overseas. I very seldom have ever heard that happening in our nation today. We kind of manufacture a lot of stuff that we try to claim being the Holy Spirit, but pretty much it's it's kind of emotionalism and really loud music and flashing lights, kind of a concert kind of deal and and you know an engaging message and but lives don't change. But pretty much we kind of still go through the motions. And one of the part that that grieves me the most is people can come to church and they can sit under God's word for 20 or 30 years, yet never get victory over areas of their life. Things never change, and we're still kind of tied up with all the trappings of the world and with making money and and the stuff that we want to do, and I, I never could understand why. And about six months ago, I started looking at the difference between us in the West and the opulent West and Christians that are just radiating the love of Christ that God is doing incredible things with, um, like um, like our missionaries, for example, and, and people like that. And, and so is it is just a geographic thing? Is it the fact that we're here and they're there, and maybe there's some extra mode of con- commitment that they have to leave home, to go somewhere else? Is God more powerful over there than he is here? Is he a respecter of nations? Is he a respecter of persons? Does he love those people and want to reveal himself to those people more than he loves here? No, that's not how our God is. God isn't a respecter of persons. God wants to pour his Holy Spirit out on anybody who's willing. But the difference I've I've come to believe is the fact that in the West, in my own life and in your own life, we have we have been blessed with something that's become a curse, and we have not been blessed with something that we consider a curse. We've been blessed with wealth, and, and that's, that's just, thank you, Lord Jesus. We have credit cards, and we're able to go to the bank and buy things we really can't afford today, and we all have homes. We have plenty of food, tons of food, if you just look at the table, and we've never gone hungry. As a matter of fact, the, the thing in our nation that's on the mind of most people January 1st is how to lose weight, is it not? I mean, we struggle with those things because God has blessed our nation with incredible wealth and a bountiful harvest, and so therefore we don't need him on a daily basis or an hour-by-hour basis to meet our needs because pretty much we can take care of it ourselves. It's the it's an American virtue. It's entrepreneurialism. It's I can handle this, and I'll make the money, and I'll feel good about myself, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it leads to spiritual apathy. 
The other thing that other people are blessed with that we consider a curse is persecution. When persecution takes place, it's rough on the daily life of the Christian, but it makes you sore on the inside spiritually. If you will look, almost every great revival began through some sort of persecution. These, these Christians that are just soaring in their faith, in Haiti, for example, they have nothing. And yet, because they had nothing, they had everything in Christ. We have everything, and because of that, we have little in Christ. You look at Christians that are in communist China or Indonesia and some of the other countries, some of the Muslim countries, and, and although they don't have the freedom that we have to worship, to come together like we do, instead they're soaring spiritually because their faith has been tested through persecution, and they find that Christ is true in what he says that he will be with those who suffer. And so it's almost like, God, if I really want to be like these other Christians who are spiritually soaring, my two prayer requests should be, take away my wealth and bring me persecution. Anybody want to pray that prayer? No. I mean, most of us don't. We're just, we're not interested in that kind of stuff. But that's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. It's it's, it's amazing how this is happening. We, we were talking about how the Holy Spirit is moving in the book of Acts, and we're moving into the first great persecution. But before we do that, I, I want to share with you two or three verses from 2 Timothy. Paul is talking to Timothy in his last letter before he's killed, and he's laying out for Timothy, this is how I've lived, this is what you've seen in me, this is what you can expect as a believer. And look what he says. He says, You've been, you have carefully followed my doctrine, that's one, my manner of life, how I've walked as a Christian is two, my purpose, what gets me up in the morning, what gives my life meaning, three, my faith, which allows me to go through what I'm going through, four, my long suffering, no matter how bad things are out there, I'm not going to give up, I'm still going to focus with my eye on the prize, my love, my perseverance, my persecution, my afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra. I mean, he lays out for the things Timothy experienced by being with Paul, and he lays out all these positive things that we want to focus on. Doctrine, the Bible teaching, the way we walk as a believer, our sanctification, our purpose, our faith, our, our long-suffering, our love, our perseverance. But that's not what Paul is trying to drive home to Timothy's heart. Because in the very next phrase he goes, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. All these other things that we focus on are important, but it's the persecutions that I want you to focus on, Timothy, because that's what makes you the man of God that you need to be. The very next verse is an if-then promise. I, uh, I'm intrigued with if-then promises. An if-then promise in Scripture means there's a condition that needs to be met, and if I meet the condition, the promise is mine. If I don't meet the condition, then I'm not going to get the result. We know how that functions in life. If I go to work and I work really hard for 40 hours, at the end of that time, I get a paycheck. If I don't go to work, I shouldn't expect a paycheck. True? And so uh, in Scripture, there's a lot of them. There's the Proverbs 3 passage. You know, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart, and if you lean not on your own understandings, and if in all your ways you acknowledge him, then the promise, you remember the rest of that? He will direct your paths. The 
salvation passage, the Romans 10, 9, and 10 passage. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Well, here's an if-then passage. Very next verse says, yes, and all, and this is the condition, who desire or who wish or will or want or, or it's their aim in life to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution or distress or peril or trouble. The if-then passage, if you desire and you make it your aim to live godly in Christ, then the promise is, the result is, that you will suffer persecution. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, we claim the Romans 10, 9, and 10 passage. I'll meet those conditions because I want to, you know, I want to be saved and have eternal life. Man, I'll claim the Proverbs 3 passage because I want God to direct my path. So I'll acknowledge him and I'll trust in him and I won't lean in my own understanding. And then I'll claim that promise myself. Well, here's one here. And how many people have claimed this promise? Well, yes, Lord, I, I want to suffer persecution. I want to be just like you. Well, if you do suffer persecution, it means that you have to live godly in me. Okay, well, if I do live godly in you, what will happen? You will suffer persecution. Because the reverse of this verse, the opposite of this verse, is also true. If I don't live godly in Christ... If I walk around like everybody else, if I live just as carnal and not as committed as the world out there, then I should not expect the world to get angry at me or come at me to stomp my light out because I've got no light to share. True? So the promise is, do we want to live godly in Christ? And if so, the badge of honor of us living godly in Christ, according to Paul, would be persecution or troubles or bad times. And we're not talking about persecution because I'm a jerk or persecution because I'm just rude or persecution because I do something that's unlawful. We're talking about persecution because of the name of Christ, which he, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to rejoice exceedingly when that happens because as they persecuted us, so they persecuted other godly men who wanted to serve him with reckless abandon. We're in Acts, and I want to just kind of give you a breakdown of where we're at right now. You know, he gives us a promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've already looked at all this. The mission of the church, you shall be my disciples. The fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and, and revolutionized everything. Peter preached his first sermon and ended it with that that charge that Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, the first converts, there were 3,000 of them out of nowhere hearing this controversial 173-word message. 3,000 people got saved. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship, and the Lord was adding to their numbers daily. And then all of a sudden, we see this first sign and wonder that takes place and. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are heading to the temple at the time of prayer. There's a man there that's been there for his entire life, crippled. They say, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, rise and walk in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He then preaches this second sermon, which is just as pointed as his first sermon, and ends with, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. And, and all of a sudden, persecution takes place. In the middle of this glorious time of the Lord, I mean, 
We've seen Jesus work these miracles, and there's no account of these happening in this magnitude before, although Acts chapter 2 said that the, through the apostles' hands many signs and wonders took place. So now we see this sign and wonder laid out in, in just graphic detail in front of them, and instead of just rejoicing of all the great things that are happening, the enemy comes and decides to attack. If he attacked us today, what we would do is probably say, I ain't doing that no more. The last thing I need to do is go to jail. Last thing I need to do is get fined. Last thing I need to do is, is lose my job. And so I, I don't want that to happen to me. So you know what? I promise I won't heal anybody on the steps anymore. And I promise I won't preach anymore about the resurrection of Christ. And I promise that when I do preach, I won't point my fingers at the religious establishment of that day and say, you Jews are the ones who crucified Christ. Instead, what I'll do is I'll just preach sermons about how to have your best life now and how to feel good in your situation how God wants to just bless you and bless you and bless you with temporal things rather than letting you wear on your body as Paul did the brand marks of Christ, which I believe were scars from his floggings and his beatings and his suffering that made him who he was. We have the first arrest that takes place in Acts chapter 4. We're going to go through this together. There's the first defense. Peter now gets an opportunity to to defend what just happened here. Then there's a cease and desist order. You know, we can't really punish these guys, so we're going to tell them from this point on, you don't speak or teach anymore about this Jesus Christ whom we find offensive. When they refuse that, the next time they're arrested, they spill blood because of that. We find civil disobedience. Peter and John says, I'm not going to listen to you. We're going to do what God tells us to do. Then the church comes together and prays for boldness. God answers that prayer in an incredible way. Then at the very end of this chapter, you had this example of Barnabas that leads right into the contra example of that of Ananias and Sapphira, which is the second great attack that takes place on the church, not externally, but from the inside. We're going to, we're going to look, look at just a couple of these beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to watch this. Verse 1. It says, Now as they, we're talking about Peter and John, spoke to the people, speaking this sermon in Acts chapter 3, were hanging on to them as this man who's been healed that everybody knew had been healed. All of a sudden, here comes the persecutors. Here comes the guys that don't want to rock the boat. Here comes the religious establishment. These are the very people that crucified Christ. And now all of a sudden, Peter and John are doing the same things Jesus did, which is what Jesus promised when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and doing it right in front of their face. Instead of Jesus doing it by the Jordan River, they're doing it on the temple steps. Peter and John are taking the battle to them. I love that, don't you? Exactly the opposite of what most of us have been trained to do in church. We don't take the battle to them. We get in our holy huddles and pray that they will not bother us doing what we want to do. It says, and as they spoke to the people, this group of people come out. You have the priests. This is one of the... 24 courses of priests. You had the captain, captain of the temple guard, which was the second most powerful person in Jerusalem at that time. You had the Roman um, ruler who was most powerful, but this was like the, the guy that worked under him, but his job was to maintain order within the temple, and he was given great latitude with his like private police force by the Romans to do that. And then you had the Sadducees. Not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. And it said that they came upon them, and this word come upon means to come upon with force and with vengeance. They came out of nowhere like a blitzkrieg. 
And it says, and being greatly disturbed, they weren't a little annoyed, they were grieved, they toiled with pain, they become weary, this has to stop, I can't take this anymore. This Jesus has been a thorn in our side for three and a half years, we killed him, and now all of a sudden his disciples are doing exactly the same thing. They were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus But Luke wanted us to know it just wasn't about his lordship that they preached. It was the fact he was raised from the dead. It was not that they claimed Jesus is God. That didn't bother them as much as the fact they claimed that Jesus raised from the dead because that was one of the Sadducees' little theological bents that they held on to more than truth. Back during Jesus' time, you had four groups of Jews. You had the Sadducees, who were like the ruling aristocracy. They were rich. They were landowners. They were very liberal. They did not believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They believed they didn't believe in the oral interpretation of the law. They believed that you're going to get everything you can get right now, that I'm going to live my life to the gusto because when we're done, we're done. So all they cared about was maintaining their status quo. And when, when Peter is preaching about the resurrection of the Christ, not the Pharisees showed up, but the Sadducees showed up and said, we must stop this man's heresy because he's preaching something that's going to give this other political group over here, the Republicans, we're the Democrats, going to give that other group over here, and we're going to... Um, We're going to have this big battle again, so we want to stop him preaching on that. Then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people who believed in the oral tradition. It was very important to them to follow every nuance of the law. They believed pretty much in salvation by works. They they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in angels and demons. And and they they were the working class of that time. These two groups made up the Sanhedrin. And then you had the Essenes, and the Essenes were the people who said, I'm just checking out, I don't want anything to do with this world. So they would form their own little communities in Qumran and some other places, and and they would just basically study God's word and try to do good things, kind of like a monk would today or somebody that's kind of checked out. And then you had the Zealots. The Zealots were, were those revolutionaries that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And you had that basic group of Jews at that time. The Essenes and the Zealots had nothing to do with the Sanhedrin. The, the, uh, the Zealots felt the Sanhedrin was corrupt. The Essenes felt it was perverted. It was basically the Sadducees and the Pharisees that were there. And most, if not all, of the high priests came from the families of the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. So as they're coming out, it says, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people preaching in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, And verse 3 says, And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, Peter and John are going to the temple about the time of the evening prayer, which is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so while they're on their way to the prayer, maybe a little before 3, they see this man in Acts chapter 3. They God heals that man miraculously through them. The rest of chapter 3, Peter's preaching a sermon that doesn't take but about six minutes to actually preach, but in the middle of his preaching, all of a sudden the temple guards come out with the Sadducees, they take them into custody, it is already evening, and they throw them in jail until the next morning. So what we have in Acts chapter 3 is just a composite of the high points of what Peter said. This sermon went on for hours, for hours. 
Guys healed at around 3 o'clock. It's now 6 o'clock when they're arrested. When they're arrested, I guarantee you, Peter didn't preach a little sermon and go to Walmart and pick up some groceries. He was still there doing that. Acts chapter 4. The results of the gospel being proclaimed under persecution. And it says, however, in spite of the fact they're arrested, in spite of the fact that their, their future is uncertain, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men, not, not women and children, you know, in Acts chapter 2, we know there were 3,000 total people, that's men, women, and children. Here, the number of men came to about 5,000. So that's not counting the 3,000 have already been saved. We've now got 5,000 men, not counting their wives and not counting their children. There may be 10,000, 12,000, 15, 20,000 people here to get saved. And they got saved at the preaching of Peter right around the, the, uh, the steps that lead up to the basically the gate of the women or the gate of the Gentiles. That's a massive amount of people. For those of you who went to some of the concerts I did when I uh, worked at New Life 91.9, our big faith, family, and freedom event we would have at the drag raceway, and we would have between 17 and 20,000 people. Do you remember? And the stands were packed. I mean, it was was as far as you can see, all the way down here, and the people on the end probably couldn't see that well and put the bands in the middle. And I want you to imagine that amount of people, just one side of of the drag strip, and in Concord, completely filled, wrapped around, crowded in on these temple guards and Peter and uh, John as they're proclaiming the message. And this doesn't count the number of people who didn't get saved. I mean, we're assuming everybody did, but we know that's not true. There may have been, if there were 5,000 men that got saved, there may have been 15,000 men that didn't. I mean, this is a massive throng of people here. Well, was it worth it, Peter? Get thrown in jail? Absolutely. When Christ is your Lord and persecution emboldens you. I mean, what would it take for something like that to happen now? I mean, I mean, what, what would it take? I'm on Facebook. So I'm, and I, again, I belong to different groups than you do. I belong to a bunch of pastor groups and polemic groups and arguing groups and kind of stuff like that. And, and so I'm, I'm watching and somebody will make a statement, a bold statement for Christ. And all of a sudden people will start giving him a hard time. And so his response as the bold believer in Christ is to defriend those people to disagree with him. What? I thought the whole purpose of this was to proclaim the message to an audience that doesn't think like you. I mean, some of the groups I belong to, that's, that's kind of what you're supposed to do. And, and, but we kind of view it differently. If anything bad happens to me, if I lose my job or my car or my retirement or, or things get difficult for me, I need to just be quiet because my security and my safety and my Life as it's always been is far more important than seeing 5,000 men saved, even if I have to pay for it by going to jail. We have the first arrest, and then we have the first defense. Look at verse number 5, and look what Peter does here. I love this. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, says the rulers, and that's the chief priest, the elders, that's families of the tribal heads or, or people of, of, that are noteworthy. The scribes, of course, would be the law experts, mostly the Pharisees. This is the people who made up the body of the Sanhedrin, as well as Annas, the high priest. You remember him from our book of John. He's, he's like a, a high priest 
um, emeritus. He's, he's not the current high priest, but he's the one they always refer to. Caiaphas' son-in-law is the current high priest at this time. We have John and Alexander, who are really uncertain who those people are, although Caiaphas had a son who was named Jonathan, and some people believe that might be him. And as many as were the families of the high priest. This was, for those of you in my generation, this was um, Miss Ellie of Dallas. You know, this was the, the highbrow kind of, see the older people smile. Everybody else is going, what? Anyway, the, it was, it was the, you know, the highbrow kind of people that, that are there, the elite families. They're all gathered together in Jerusalem. Again, this is not soon after Pentecost. They're part of the Sanhedrin that's coming together. And when they sat them down in the midst, all of a sudden, they had a serious question to ask. When they set them down in the midst of the Sanhedrin now, they asked, by what power? That word, of course, is deutimos. That's the explosive working power, the miracle working power. This guy was lame. Now he can walk. Tell me how this was done. What power do you have to do that? Or by what name, what authority gave you that power? We know that you don't have the power. You're just common fishermen. You're just ordinary people. You're not dressed like we're dressed. You don't have the money that we have. You don't have the the degrees hanging on the wall or all the accolades. You don't have anything. And now you've gone from just being itinerant preachers, preaching the gospel that they heard from Christ, to a miracle taking place to snatch you up, put you in jail, then bring you out the next day, probably not really all that clean, slap them in front of the most intimidating setting you can imagine, the Sanhedrin, or before the Supreme Court, or a joint session of Congress, and they're accusing you and asking you, what power or what name and authority have you done this? Because they viewed them as rebels. We did not give you authority to work this miracle out like they could. We did not give you authority to preach a message contrary to us. We're preaching politically correct speak, and you're preaching something that's only going to cause problems. What authority and what power did you do, did you do this? And then Peter, here's the promise. This is what happens to us when... The, we allow ourselves by surrendering ourselves to the Lord to be put in similar situations. But Peter, not on his own, but filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the key, isn't it? Peter, this guy that not too long ago denied he even knew Christ, this guy that always took one foot out of his mouth just to stick another foot in, this guy in Acts chapter 21 decided, I'm going back fishing, and Jesus had to restore him three times. Do you remember all that? I mean, this is Peter. This is a guy who speaks and doesn't think. This is a guy that ran away in the in the courtyard there from just a maid who, who recognized him as a follower of Christ. Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, everybody here, I want you to listen to what I have to say. There's a boldness here. I mean, he's not just preaching a message to people he felt equal with. You know, Acts chapter 2 hits, the Holy Spirit comes on, and he walks out, and just a bunch of people like he are. Nobody's really noteworthy. They're blue-collar. He's blue-collar. He's preaching the message. They get saved. It's kind of an equal exchange. I'm not intimidated. Now he's standing in front of the people who have a setting that's designed to intimidate. And he's not intimidated at all. And the reason why is not because Peter's a special guy. It's because Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and he gets up there and says, rulers and people and elders of Israel. And he starts proclaiming with boldness this defense, which is, which is amazing. Let's just read this. Verse 8. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel. Golly, you're talking, Peter, you know, your attorney is telling you to just tone it down a little bit. Throw yourself in the mercy of the court. I mean, you're, 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 these guys have power over you. They've already murdered your Lord and you're sticking it to their face. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. There you go with the resurrection. By him, this man stands here before you whole. Then he quotes Psalm, the Psalms to them. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone of the new temple built on the covenant of Christ. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no name, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Those are fighting words. I mean, where does this come from? It comes from a promise to Jesus. I mean, Peter's experiencing a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus gave not only to them, but also to us. Acts 12, or Luke 12 says this, Now when, not if, but when it's expected this would happen, they bring you into the synagogues and magistrates and authorities. When the government powers, the ruling powers, the religious establishment, which are are funded and are living according to the God of his age, decide they want to stamp the light out of Christ who's living in you. Do not worry about how or what you should answer. Yeah, I I think I'd be worrying it. I'd be working up my trial documents. I'd be doing everything. And no, don't worry about that. Why? Or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you not weeks before, but in that hour, what you ought to say. It's a dependent thing. It's you know, well, you've got three weeks to prepare. Right? I'm going to prepare my stuff, and I'm not counting on that. The fact of the matter is, when I give my proclamation and my defense of myself in the gospel, God is going to give me that words that hour. Just like he fed his children of Israel daily for their, their substance. Give us this day our daily, but you need to trust me, he says. Not in the big picture, but trust me on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, step-by-step walk with you. This was fulfilled in what Peter said. And at that point, he sees the opportunity here, filled with the Holy Spirit and had wisdom and, and boldness. And there's this undeniable proof that we're going to look at in just a second of this man that's laying here. Then we got the, the damage control and the spin that they're going to try to put on what just happened. And Peter and them defy them because of the, what the Lord says. And they give them additional threats. And then the church comes together and responds totally different than most churches do today. And then God responds to their obedience in a powerful way. I mean, just watch this. We're going to look at the residual wisdom here. Verse number 13, after he proclaims this message, these guys are dumbfounded. Uh, we thought we'd intimidating him. He's not intimidated. He just just took the... The, the, the battle to us. He said that, that we rejected this chief cornerstone, that God has done something we can't even imagine. He told us that I, we crucified Christ, which we did, and now he's raised from the dead, which really irritated the, the Sadducees over here, and that by the resurrection, which we don't believe in, of a man we crucified, this guy who we can't deny is healed, is healed. But how do you deal with that? Look what they said. 
when they saw the boldness of the freedom to speak as God anointed them to speak of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men. I love this. <clears throat> uneducated mean they were out of a degree. In, in their days, it was called a letter of learning. They were uninstructed. It also means illiterate. These guys didn't go to school. These guys don't have PhDs. Why do we have to listen to them? Because they weren't educated. We're educated, so therefore we think we have knowledge. They're not educated, yet they're speaking this profound truth. And I see this Peter and John. I see their boldness. And then I realize that they're not like us. They're, they're, uh, they're illiterate, uneducated men. <clears throat> And untrained men, we, we get the word an idiot, uh, a fool. They're, they get there, they're just, they're just crazy. That's, uh, they don't even want to better themselves like we are. Yet we can't deny what's happening. It said that they marveled. And this word marvel doesn't mean to go, wow. It means to be punched in the face by something. Bam! I had a V8. I can't believe this is, this is happening. I'm marveling at the fact that they had been with Jesus. He was their education. They didn't need learned letters from men. He was their education. Holy Spirit lived in them. They were proclaiming truth that only Christ had given them, and they were incredibly intimidated. Not only that, we find, it says, verse number 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves a consensus taking place here, saying, what, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. I mean, this has happened, and there's nothing we can do about that. But so that it spreads no further among the people. Now, now wait a second. There's been a notable miracle that has taken place in Jerusalem, this guy had been laying at the temple steps for like 40 years. Everybody who ever went to the temple, who ever lived in Jerusalem, passed this guy at one point in time. They either not looked at him, they didn't want anything to do with him. So when this guy is healed, there's no way we can deny it. Word is spread, and I'm sure everybody wants to know how this happened. But so, verse 17, but so it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. Later on, they'll severely beat them that from now on they speak no more in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But, uh, but Peter and John answered and said to them, where are these men today? Where are, where are the men that view our life as leading others to Christ rather than trying to build our own little tabernacles and our own little sanctuaries, our own little kingdoms and funded by ourselves and, and living our quiet little lives until we... I mean, what, what happened? What happened to the church in the West? Here's what they said. Verse 19, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. It ain't going to happen. I've been saved. I've been redeemed. And this miracle has taken place. God has come into my life. I was once lost. I'm now saved. He's prepared a place in heaven for me. He's filled me with his spirit. I understand before the foundation of the world, God chose me and, and, and or ordained me. And he gives me fruit to produce. Jesus says he's building a, 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 a dwelling place with him for me right now in heaven. And where I am, he will take me with him. Explain to me what in this world means more than that. And every one of us, have that testimony. Every one of us have been saved out of darkness into light, yet we 
have bought into the mantra of our culture that can't say anything offensive. By the way, light is offensive to dark. You realize that? Righteousness is offensive to sin. Doesn't mean you have to be a jerk or be offensive while you're saying it. But the fact is, I can't help but tell what's happened in my life. I, I just want to, I just want to scream on the mountaintops to talk about what Jesus has done for me. If you talk to Debbie, you will find that you will not get in a conversation with her for three minutes before she's not telling you the story that happened to her this week. Oh, let me tell you what God did. Oh, I was so worried about it. Oh, we, we just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And the worst thing we imagined happened at all. All of a sudden, God did this and this and this. It's just a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Because her life's been changed. She can't help but tell others about what's happened to her. But something far greater than a, a murder not taking place, extending her earthly life a little longer, something far greater than that has happened to her. She's been saved like we have. Same thing happens. Verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because the people, because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Oh yeah, 5,000 men, who knows how many other people. For the man was over 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And then it gets, then it gets amazing. So we have a church, and we have a church building. And we have a debt on the building because what we've done is we've kind of built bigger than we really needed. And so we have all this sheetrock and all this real estate and all these bricks that we're paying for that we use about three times a week. You know, we've got a church sanctuary that sits 3,000 people that we give a sermon on Sunday, maybe a concert occasionally and some special talk. But by and large, the building is pretty much empty. But but we've built this and it's become identified with, with who we are. We have insurance. We have insurance to cover the building in case... Something terrible happens. We also have liability insurance because, God forbid, you know, one of our nursery workers does something he shouldn't do. And so we want to make sure that we've got liability insurance and because it's all important to us to maintain the structure, to maintain the name of the church. Because the church has been here for like 60 years and it's got a history here. It's been on this corner of Oak and Maple. And, you know, we just want to make sure it's there. And the pastor's a guy that we hired and someday he'll leave or we'll fire him or bring somebody else in. And, and we're just constantly, it's, it's a business. It's an entity. And all of a sudden, my pastor or two deacons or an elder and such laymen go out there and they bring the whole power of the government against us. You know, we were proclaiming Jesus in our church, in our wall, and nobody bothered us. But these two guys had the audacity to take it out there, not just to the Walmart parking lot, but to the, the step of the religious government at that time and work some incredible miracle. Like, I mean, can't we just do those miracles here on Wednesday night and Tuesday night. Now you go out there and now a decree has been laid out that we can't do what we want to do anymore. That we can't proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. Peter, I mean, come on. You're making it difficult for all of us. Why would you go do that? Now they know where we are. Now they know who we are. Now they're going to come after us like they came after you. And so in most churches I've been part of, we would call our attorney we would look at our liability policy and we would make a decision that we need to somehow stifle these two guys because he's going to make it really difficult for the rest of us. And the rest of us don't want to have a life like Peter and John. The rest of us want to, again, just go through life and just do our little thing and ask Jesus to season our life but not be the center of our life. True? It's the way, way it works in the West. When you go over to these underground churches and you go over to churches that meet in barns or meet in... In, you know, just other places. And they don't have a vested interest in a building. The church is not a building. The church is a, 
It's a group of believers, and if they can't meet here, they'll meet over here. And if that doesn't work, they'll meet under this tree. And if that doesn't work, they'll meet over here. It doesn't matter. But here it's different because everything is tied up in our structure and building our kingdoms and multiple campuses. And Look what this church did. In the midst of what would have torn an American church in half, and if this was the pastor doing this, there would be a huge groundswell to let him go. Seriously, we don't want a pastor that's going to bring notoriety to us, especially in a negative sense. We want a pastor that'll preach us little ditties of a sermon that make us feel good about ourselves, pat us on the back on the way home, and we're satisfied. But that's not how it is here, and it shouldn't be that way in any of our lives. In the midst of all this, I'm amazed the church remained unified. Verse 23 says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had to say to them. And I'm imagining some of the deacon meetings and elder meetings that I've been in. You've got one or two people to go, yeah, Peter, I want to go with you next time. And then you've got the other people, a couple people over here that go, man, it's got to stop. It's got to stop. You don't understand. We've got to stop. We, we just can't afford this kind of attention. Then you've got this group in the middle who just doesn't care. I don't know. Well, that's kind of cool. Doesn't really affect me because... And I'm, I'm doing my own thing and, and climbing my corporate ladder at work and making my money and doing all the stuff I need to do. And, you know, I can't imagine a group like that ever being unified unless they were unified against what they were doing. But it's exactly the opposite of these guys. Look what this says, verse 24. And when they heard that everything that was reported to them, they raised to their voice to God with one accord. Wow. This church that began in one accord praying in the upper room for 10 days. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they're all together in one accord when the Holy Spirit falls. And then Peter, Peter preaches, and now persecution has taken place, and they're still unified with Christ as Lord in one accord. And what they said was this. And this is such a lesson that we need to learn. God is sovereign. I mean, God is sovereign. He's sovereign in this situation with Tim and Debbie. You know, he worked a wonderful miracle out because God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he realized that their work wasn't done here. Could have just as easily gone the other way. And we would have mourned that, and we'd have gone, oh, if this just hasn't happened, what, what do you think it surprised God? He knew exactly what he was doing. God is sovereign in all things. Our God is in his heavens, and he does what he pleases. And once you grab hold of the sovereignty of God and hold on to it, worry flees. You know, I, I've got this terrible situation, God. I've, I've got Jeannie Wynn, for example. I've, I've got cancer, and I'm doing everything I can to treat the cancer, and I'm praying that you will heal me. And God will either heal her or he won't. And either way, he's promised whatever he does is best for her. Know what I mean? It's best for her. I was, um, um, my mom's, uh, her death is coming up in fifth anniversary of her death in uh, May. And uh, I, was, uh, I was talking to my brother about that. And, and in, our, in our bedroom, we've got a picture that was taken before Haley was born. And it's Karen's mom, who's been dead about 20 years. And it's my mom, who's about our age in that picture, about our age, and four of our kids. And Justice is really little, sitting on, on Merle's lap. And, and then uh, Haley, of course, felt bad about the fact that she's not in the picture. So she slapped her picture on the wall, too, when she was a kid. Precious, priceless. But anyway, and I'm looking at that picture, and I'm, I'm thinking, it's really a shame that, uh, that Merle, Karen's mom, got pancreatic cancer and died about 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm speaking like a fool. 
No, it's not. I mean, she's been in the glory of heaven, in the presence of the Lord, with no pain and no suffering since 1998. I mean, who's most blessed here, me or her? She is, if you look at it from an eternal perspective. Now, granted, I'm here, and while I'm here, I want to be able to do everything I can for the kingdom of God. I want to be used by him. I don't want to, I don't want to try to do it all for me, because the fact is, I will go the way of every human being that ever lived, except probably Enoch, and I will pass away, and, and I'll be gone. But the fact is, I mean, what a blessing. You know, my mom... You know, my mom has been dead for, she'll be coming up on five years. And I'm trying to, well, you know, it'd be great, Mom, if you were here because we got some additional great-grandkids that you haven't seen. I'll see them again. You know, I mean, uh, I know you want to see Justice get married, now Haley's get married. You know what? I'll see them again. But the fact is, for five years, my mom has been where I hope to go someday. I mean, she has received a reward that is held in earnest for me, but she's absolutely experiencing it now. And once we get that idea in our head of what sovereignty of God is all about, it takes all the fear away, all the worry away, all the rush away. Because God, if you know, if, if you want to heal Jeannie, she'll be healed. If you choose not to heal Jeannie, you know what's best. True. I pray and ask God to take care of this. He either will or he won't. But I don't, I want him to do things according to his will because his will is always best. And my stress comes when his will is different than mine and I demand my way like a spoiled child. Doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. Look what they did here. They immediately recognized God's sovereign. So they raised their voice to God in one accord and said, Lord, you are God. That's who you are, God. You are God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are sovereign over everything. And, and then he's, they go on to quote Psalm 2. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I mean, what's the point of that, nations? God is sovereign. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. I mean, how, how foolish is that? And then something Something the church, something I need to learn is they pointed out in the rest of this prayer that it's all about him. It's not about us. It's all about him. I'm going to read this and I'm going to emphasize how many times they point it towards God. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, not us, but this is about your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed. We did and you did. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. To do what? To do whatever your hands and your purpose determined to be done. Because you're sovereign God. This didn't catch you by surprise. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's you, 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 you. You, look at it here. Your holy servant, Jews, Jesus, whom you anointed, your hand, your purpose, your servant, may speak your words. And, um, the early church, in the midst of persecution, as an example for us, bled the sovereignty of God. We see this, God. It was your hand that did this, and your hand has placed us here. You chose to heal this guy exactly when you did. You chose the persecution to take place. Stephen's going to die in a couple chapters, and we're going to see your hand in even that. It all belongs to you, God. 
by stretching out your hands, the name of your holy servants. And then we've looked at this. We've looked at the church response. Look at God's response. Same kind of response I believe he wants to have in our lives. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Now look that word up. It's a really amazing word. It means emotion produced by windstorms or waves. It's kind of like if there's a tornado outside and the walls are going like this and you're afraid that the ceiling's going to fall in. It's to move to and fro. It means the people were moving to and fro. The place where they were were moving to and fro. I mean, I can't imagine what that must have been like. You ever been to church service like that? Me neither. And I've been in thousands of them. I've heard stories about this happening elsewhere. Not in America, but in other countries. I've, I've also seen what he says in Acts chapter 2, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. All of a sudden they're praying, and in the middle of their praying, understanding the sovereignty of God, making it all about him and not about them, because they're just losses. They're just servants. They're slaves of the Most High God. All of a sudden the building they're at starts shaking, and God is letting them know, I am here. I hear you. Here is my powerful, awesome presence. And it said that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result of all that, they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. With boldness. They had, um, they had two prayer requests. And again, I'm, I'm shamed in the fact that I can't tell you how many times, how long I've been a pastor, and how many prayer meetings I've been to, and how many prayers that I've prayed, and I've never asked for the same thing they've asked for. We've always asked, you know, God, help this person, restore that relationship. And that's good. Those are good things. But we've never, I've never prayed what these prayer requests are for. Now, look at what they prayed. It says, now, Lord, look at their threats. And because of their threats, grant to your servants that one with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. God, we haven't prayed that way. With all boldness? Well, it's pretty simple because if I pray with all boldness, the next time I go out and get in my car or go into Clover or the McDonald's or go to Walmart, I can speak the word of God with boldness. True. But what we'd rather do is just get our groceries and go home. It makes it easier for us. You know, we have to worry about that. We're not going to get things thrown at us. Nobody's going to get upset with us. And, you know, we just, we just want to live our, our quiet little lives. So, Lord, please, please, please don't let me speak the word of God with boldness. Just my prayer request is don't make me feel guilty for being disobedient to what you created me to be. I'm praying that you'll speak the word of God with boldness. And Lord, do that by stretching out your hand to heal, just like what happened with this guy. Because I would love for my entire neighborhood to come to Christ when a miracle takes place like that. And two, second prayer request, the signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Oh, those don't happen anymore. Maybe for you, maybe in America, but that doesn't mean they don't happen with God. The issue is not him. We went to great lengths talking about that last October. The issue's with us. Now watch how he answered those prayers. He answered the first one immediately. Because there's something they're involved with, speaking the word of God with boldness. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Got that. Chapter 5, after you had this deal with Ananias and Sapphira, all of a sudden the second prayer request was answered. And look what it says in Acts 5.13. It says that through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done, done among the people. And they were all again with one accord on Solomon's porch. And if you'll keep reading, 
It says, uh, verse 13, chapter 5 says, None of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, more than the three, more than the 5,000 men, so much so that they brought out the sick onto the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were, the word is, all healed. Well, do you only answer that prayer for them? Or do you answer the same prayer for people who earnestly pray for it and pray for it with a with faith, which is confident, or hope, which is confident expectation? You know, on another topic, the Scripture says you have not because you ask not. And I think one of the reasons why this doesn't happen is we don't want it to happen. I mean, we don't. It'll mess up everything we're doing. I had a conversation a number of years ago, many years ago, with a pastor who had just... Big church, nice guy, had just moved to his fourth Sunday morning service. Crowds are coming so big that we had to cut the service. Each service like 45 minutes. They get there at 8.30 and then, I don't know, 9.45. I don't know what it is, but, you know, four services on Sunday morning. And I'm having lunch with him, and I said, well, let me ask you a question. Now, what would happen if your second service, I mean, Holy Spirit just busted out. I mean, busted out incredible. People came to the front and they're praying and they're confessing their sins. And you got this huge throng of people ready to get in and get out, you know, because, you know, somebody's taking their sin. What would you do then? How would you handle it then? And his response was, I don't know. It's never happened. I, I, I can't remember in my own experience it ever happened. I mean, sometimes in churches, you know, the Holy Spirit shows himself and there's a time of contrition and a time of prayer and, and all that kind of stuff. But to, to have something like that, I'm, you know, if any of that ever happens to somebody's church on a one-time basis, they write a book about it, start a class about it, you know, do a, tell everybody how it gets done. But it's not something that, that we see in church today because we don't expect it. And I know in my own life, I've been remiss by not praying for it. This is what this church prayed for. This is what Peter and in one accord, they prayed for this. God, if we're going to be church Let's be church. Let's let's pray for them. Just see you move like you've you promised to move. Is it scary? Absolutely. Will it rock your world? You better believe it. Will it mess up your theological high tower? Probably. But that's okay. But wouldn't you want to see that happen? Will all of a sudden you become have notoriety? You better believe it. Will the enemy decide to start attacking you? Absolutely. And most, most of that enemy will come from within the church itself. All who desire to live godly in Christ and see amazing things happen in their life, I promise you, you will suffer persecution. It's a given. But I don't know about you, I'm 62 years old. I mean, I don't want to die and say, well, I, I always dreamed it could be different, but I never experienced it. We have an opportunity, just individually. It's not a corporate thing. It's an individual thing. Because it's, you know, when I'm living a godly life in Christ and Scott's living a godly life in Christ, when we come together as the church, now this church is living a godly life in Christ. It's an individual thing. And it begins with a deep desire to know who he is. And here's why. Because whether you believe it or not, if you haven't been persecuted for your faith, if you haven't gone through tribulation because of your faith, if you really don't think God's going to judge our nation because we have Republicans in the White House now versus Democrats, you really don't understand the sin 
that's in our nation, it's in our DNA, which is systemic. I mean, even with a much better guy in the White House than the other options were, the fact is homosexuality still breeds like kudzu. The babies are getting aborted every single day. That the ability to proclaim Christ is being marginalized. I mean, even the, the ability to proclaim conservative values is being marginalized to the point that people will go to war over that and will riot and burn police cars to keep just a conservative person from sharing conservative values. What do they think they're going to do to you and me if we start proclaiming the righteousness of a holy God? We will suffer persecution. And that's not a bad thing. It's not. It only is if you hold on to this world too tightly and you realize that and you fail to realize that God is much bigger than we are. The last question is, so if we believe any of this, what are you prepared to do about it? But I, what I pray you don't do is what I've done most of my life, is I'm convicted, and I don't like that conviction, so I want to throw that conviction off as soon as possible. And so I'm convicted about something. And so what I want to do is I don't want to think about it. I don't want to act on it. I just want to pretend like it goes away. And if I come back the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday, I still get convicted about the same message. I ain't coming back for Sunday. Then I'm going to find somebody else that will preach me a message that won't convict me. I mean, we kind of all do that. Rather than what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in our lives is when we're convicted about something to drive us to our knees, lay on our face before the Lord, and do business with Him. Because this life is short. And eternity is a long time. And I think there's far more he wants to do with us than we can even imagine. Amen? Let me pray.